Doctor's Kitchen. Recipes, health, lifestyle. You got your culinary mushrooms that you can cook with every day and enjoy them and eat. Good source of dietary fiber, good for gut health, good for your metabolism. Then there's um, there are healing mushrooms, medicinal mushrooms. Um, take a look, if you're going to do your research on these, take a look at their traditional medicinal uses. You know, were they used for uh, uh, illnesses that were characterized by hot versus cold, you know, the Asian way of thinking about it. Look at their uses in Ayurvedic medicine. They were not used on a daily basis to be ground up in your pepper mill to actually put into your coffee or sprinkle on your salad. This is a modern translation of things that were used originally in medicine. By the way, you would not go into your medicine cabinet, okay, and take a puddle of pills and open them up and put them in a spice grinder and sprinkle them on your, on your salad either. So I would say, be careful. Welcome to the Doctor's Kitchen Podcast. The show about food, lifestyle, medicine, and how to improve your health today. I'm Dr. Rupi, your host. I'm a medical doctor, I study nutrition, and I'm a firm believer in the power of food and lifestyle as medicine. Join me and my expert guests where we discuss the multiple determinants of what allows you to lead your best life. Dr. William Lee, New York Times best-selling author of Eat to Beat Your Diet and Eat to Beat Disease is back on the podcast today talking about everything to do with food as medicine. And today we are discussing a huge number of subjects, including warning signs that you're having too much sugar or refined carbohydrates in your diet, alcohol, and whether there is any tolerable limit that is healthy or could be classed as healthy in the diet. We talk about coffee and whether we should be drinking alternative sources of polyphenols, why caffeine is even in tea and coffee, William's thoughts on the lectin debate that is raging online, and whether we should be avoiding high lectin foods at all, why and how food can burn specific types of fat, organic versus conventional produce, oils. Like I said, we cover a lot of topics that I know you guys have been asking me about. And just to refresh your memory, Dr. William Lee, MD, is an internationally renowned physician and scientist. His research has led to the development of more than 30 new medical treatments that impact care for more than 70 diseases, including diabetes, blindness, heart disease, obesity. And he's also president and medical director of the Angiogenesis Foundation, a leading global initiative on food and angiogenesis, the process of forming new red blood cells. He is a massive advocate for food as medicine and a good colleague and friend of mine. And remember, you can watch the podcast for free. You can watch both me and Dr. William and our smiling faces in high definition on YouTube. You can subscribe there as well. We're also doing exclusive YouTube content that won't translate very well through the podcast. So obviously we're doing lots of recipes. Again, those will be completely free on YouTube. We're going to be doing more specific deep dives into topics that require graphics and wouldn't translate very well on a podcast as well. In fact, we're doing a taste testing with different green powders in a couple of weeks as well. So make sure you subscribe so you don't miss that because I know a lot of people ask me about green powders and whether they're worth it or not. 
And we're also going to be doing a lot more stuff behind the scenes too. So you can actually see what's going on in the Doctor's Kitchen studio. You can download the Doctor's Kitchen app for free as well. There's a 14-day free trial. You can check out the hundreds of different recipes. And every week, thousands of people are using the app to use food as medicine and they're feeling better and more energetic and more vivacious. And it's wonderful to see all those thousands of five-star reviews from across the world. We've got some big, big features coming up in the new year. And remember, it is available on Android as well as iOS as well. And in the meantime, you can subscribe to the new servers for free. We have two every single week. Eat, Listen, Read, and Seasonal Sundays, where we do a deep dive into the nutritional research of a particular ingredient that happens to be in season. And we also have What's for Dinner, which is for our app subscribers, where we actually send you shopping lists and meal plans for five dinners that we're excited about for that week. I really hope you enjoy this podcast with Dr. William Lee. He is an absolute wealth of information and I hope you glean something from today as well that you can put into action this week and going forward. Enjoy. Before we get started, here is a quick word from the people who make this podcast possible. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. William, great to have you back on the podcast. Um, we're going to go right into this. What are some of the warning signs that people have too much sugar or refined carbohydrates in their diet? You know, one of the things that people need to look out for, which is sensed by how you feel as an individual. So everyone's different. When you actually have overloaded yourself with sugars or carbs is really a feeling of lethargy or not having as much energy, right? And it sounds ironic because sugar gives you energy, right? Anybody knows you drink energy drinks. It's like loaded with sugar and caffeine. You you think that it would actually pump you up, but it's really the fact that the aftermath of having too many of, of an overload of sugar and carbs tends to make you feel tired. A lot of people talk about, you know, the glucose uh, spikes and dips, and that's part of it as well. But I think that there are many other things that can actually occur, especially if you're a serial uh, overloader of sugar and carbs. Yeah, yeah. And where are the sources? Do you feel that people are slipping up with sugar or refined carbohydrates? Because I, I, I don't think people equate 
um, sugar in their diet as accurately as they perhaps should be. Because most people, particularly patients that I speak to, are like, well, doctor, I don't put you know, a teaspoon of sugar in my coffee, or, you know, I don't have that many desserts uh, in a day. Where are the places that people are actually slipping up when it comes to uh, sneaking in sugar and, and refined carbohydrates in their diet, unbeknownst to them? Okay. So what you're talking about is the uh, person who feels like they're actually pretty healthy, yet they're not feeling that well. And they will tell mm. you or me as doctors, you know, I'm actually, dude, I'm a pretty healthy person, right? I mean, we all have people like that. When you really question them and ask them in detail what they're actually doing, you find out that they're drinking soda. Now, soda is probably one of the uh, secret agents, evil agents of sugar that uh, loads you down, you know, like anywhere from seven to nine teaspoons of refined sugar. And I always tell people who are surprised by that, right? You drink a, a can of your favorite uh, soft drink, uh, the, the colas, uh, and um, they're like, I can slug one of those down on a, on a hot day or when I'm really thirsty. Or I remember when I was in medical school, I had classmates that would drink a six pack of sodas every single day while they were studying. And, 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 yeah. And this was long before I really got into, I was really researching food as medicine, but it would astound me, right? So think about that. A can of soda having seven to nine teaspoons of refined sugar. If I, I, I always tell people, if I gave you an empty glass in your kitchen and filled it with seven teaspoons of sugar and just handed it to you to say, down that, um, mm. people would go, no way, I'm going to do that. So I think soda is a sneaky way that you get actually a lot of an overload of refined sugar. Now, what about the other person who basically, and, and of course, if you're snacking, you know, the ultra processed foods often taste good because they add sugar, uh, uh, but also so do, you know, the pastries and cakes and things that people have around sort of eating nonchalantly without realizing they're getting the sugar in. Now, there is an alternative uh, uh culprit, frankly, uh, where people who overdo things, right? So here's the athlete, right? The, the marathoner, uh, who basically said, no, 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 listen, I'm really healthy. Let me tell you, I've got like 0% body fat and I eat fruits and vegetables. I'm like, you know, Mr. Plant-based, but then you find out that they're somebody who does extreme things. So they'll sit down and they will actually eat 10 oranges a day. Or they will, uh, you know, have, uh, you know, a, a bucket of blueberries. And yes, I think the other thing, the other extreme is that you can actually get a lot of sugar by eating a lot of fruits that actually contain that sugar. So although, you know, I, I think that this is where I try to get people to understand that fruits are a safe form a safe route to get sugars because you get so many other good things with them and your body does need sugar. But like everything else, moderation is the key. You can have some too much of something that's good and tip over at the point where you're actually getting a little too much of it. So those are some of the sneaks I would actually say, or, you know, the person for carbs, you know, somebody who's a real pasta lover, right? Uh, and, and by the way, you see this in people who work in restaurants, uh, especially people who work in the kitchen, yeah. they make these incredible dishes. And all of a sudden you measure their blood pressure, their blood pressure is really high and their blood sugars are really high. 
And they're like, well, you know, I don't even have time to eat. I don't know what you're talking about. I go to the gym and you find out that they're eating, you know, pasta and and salted restaurant food all the time. So I think that's another another place that it's very sneaky to get carbs and sugar in is if you eat out all the time. You know, busy people who are traveling that don't have the luxury of being able to plan everything, uh, you know, mindfully, uh, sometimes they're just downing whatever they can. And that's another source, sneaky source of getting too many sugars and carbs. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think they're all super valid points. And I, just to uh, to underline what you were saying about the uh, weekend warrior or the, you know, um, uh, wannabe athlete or someone who's just like really into the gym, someone like myself, actually, I, I love going to the gym myself. I go most days in a week, but I, I have a lot of friends who subscribe uh, wholly to the calorie in, calorie out uh, phenomena. Um, this this sort of understanding that as long as you are within your calorie count, you'll be absolutely fine and there's nothing to worry about. Um, now, you were just talking about binging on, on fruits, like having way too many fruits, but there are some other people who may not even get the sugar from the whole fruit forms, which are obviously packed with fibers and polyphenols that are super healthy. And you talk about in your books as well, in both of them, eat to be disease, need to be your diet. Um, what about those people who are slugging the the leucosades, the gatorades, the the high sugars, but they're still within their calorie count and they feel that that's healthy. Uh, are they doing un- something untoward to their health uh, despite that that calorie fitting? Yeah, well, you know the the whole thing that about calories is that it's one word that has become a loaded time bomb because everyone feels that you can have that magic bullet, simple answer solution to all of your health ailments. Calorie in and calorie out is way too oversimplistic and it's really an outdated idea uh, in and itself. Back in the day, let's go back into a time machine and step 30 years behind. Okay, to where we are today. And yes, I mean, I think that the state of the art of thinking about nutrition was looking at calories and proteins um, and fats and carbs. Uh, But we're way beyond that now. And so in today's world, what we realize is a calorie is simply a a unit, a measure of energy uh, that we get from our food. And that energy is sort of the fuel, the the gasoline, the petrol that we load into our body, the same way that we actually go to the gas station and get uh, fuel, petrol uh, to load into our car. If you drive a car that uses, uh, still uses petrol and, you know, you fill it up and then you drive off. But I like to use that analogy about the car and petrol, because if you think about it this way, we we all know that our cars run on fuel. But we don't think about that fuel very much. And we don't think about all the interconnections between the fuel tank and the fuel injector and all the carburetor and the, you know, all the complicated things in the car engine. We just get in and go about our way, just like we go about in our life. The only time we start to focus on the fuel of the car is when the gas meter runs down, the fuel tank gauge runs down. And then all of a sudden, that's all we can think about. I got to find a, a station to be able to fill up, right? And that's really the same thing in our body. When our fuel body's fuel tank runs low, our fuel gauge registers low. And it's a complicated system, but think about our um, the gut-brain axis as being our fuel tank 
using hormones to signal our fuel gauges. Load. All of a sudden, all you can think about is going to uh, the kitchen or to the refrigerator or to get something to eat, grab something out, out, out to eat, right? So that's kind of that. Um, and then the, the more you are hungry, you're, the lower your fuel is, the more uh, panicked you actually get uh, about it. Just like when your fuel gauge is almost empty, like like you're on the red line, all of a sudden, like your your pulse is racing to find that petrol station so you don't run off out of gas on the side of the road. That's that's when we get hangry, right? You go, you're like totally uh, agitated. All right. So the point is mm. that when you go to the gas station to fill up uh, your tank uh, with petrol, we and our bodies fill up our, our, our body with fuel, which are the unit of fuel is not gallons, but it's really calories. But just like the car, you know that you have a choice of different types of petrol you could put in. There's the poor quality, cheap stuff. There's the more expensive stuff that's higher quality. And, you know, if you fill up your uh, car uh, a few times, once in a while with really crappy fuel, it's going to be okay. No problem. Your car is going to be able to do it. But if day after day, week after week, all you're doing is mm -hmm. using the cheapest, poorest quality fuel. All right. Eventually, your car is really just not going to run very well because that car needs to be cared for. Same deal with calories. If you're putting in fuel calories that is higher quality, meaning having those polyphenols, having the fiber, all the good stuff, like eating whole plant based foods, fruits, vegetables, nuts and legumes, it's all giving us fuel. And, uh, but all the other stuff really enriches the engine mm. of our body so that we're going to run longer and better. Just like a, like if you, and by the way, here's the other thing. If you owned a jalopy, an old crummy car that's been handed down from, you know, an older sibling and then maybe from an uncle and it's like barely chugging along, you know, the, the, the chitty, chitty, bang, bang, kind of like <laughs> uh, jal jalopy. All right. You, you might you might be tempted to pour poor quality fuel those a, a crappy car is going to break down faster if you don't feed it quality fuel all right so that's one thing to and a lot of people start out with not such a great health and so you want this is if you're starting out behind the eight ball all right if your body is sort of the jalopy and you want to get better you want to actually immediately putting put higher quality fuel easy Farmer's market, produce section of the grocery store, um, you know, choose the right fuel, not just calories, but all the other good stuff, and your car will run better. You'll notice it right away. On the other hand, if your car is a Ferrari, guarantee you, if you've invested that much into that beautiful Ferrari red vehicle, when you pull over to the station, you are not going to be putting the cheapest quality gas in there. So you need to actually step up your game. To, in, regardless of what end of the spectrum you are. And that's why a calorie is not a calorie and a calorie in and a calorie out is way too oversimplified. Not to mention the fact that there's many ways. I was, I was just talking about the calorie in part. Not to mention there's many other ways of thinking about the calorie out. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I love how you've used that analogy that is quite commonly adopted as a way to explain calories in, calories out to actually explain why it's not as uh, simple as that. And actually, you've got to think about the intricacies of a car, whether it is an old banged up chitty chitty bang bang type car or a performance car. You know, you've got to really think about the quality of what you're fueling said car with. 
Um, and I think you're right. It does get super oversimplified for people. And actually, you know, we've had many conversations in the podcast now about how chronically underfueling your car, which is what a lot of people do with uh, uh, diets in particular, can lead to worse outcomes in the long run in terms of changing your body's set point and then actually having this yo-yo phenomenon where you're actually putting on more weight as well. So th there's so many pitfalls there that people need to be um, aware of. Um, and in terms of um, uh, calories, um, and, and this is something that comes up quite a bit, and although I don't like to talk about alcohol through the lens of calories, and it does tend to have quite a bit and people don't really realize the, the energy uh, consumption that people have with alcohol, I'd love to know your thoughts on alcohol because there appears to be a changing consensus on what is a healthy amount of alcohol, what is an unhealthy amount of alcohol, what moderation actually means, and whether we should really be aiming for abstinence in its entirety um, and whether that's a reasonable approach. What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, Rupi, I'm glad you asked me about that because I I have a maybe a a, a very humanistic way of thinking about alcohol. And, and I will talk about the science and the medicine in one second, but here's what I want people to know from my voice. First of all, alcohol is part of our humanity. As far back as humankind has been growing things and fermenting things, uh, and you know, whether it's uh, 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 hops for beer or grapes for wine, We've been making alcohol and fermented products can actually have some good things. You know, other fermented foods we know is good for gut health. But alcohol, which is a byproduct of fermentation, um, uh, is first and foremost something that's been part of human ritual for tens of thousands of years. We drink together as a community uh, in, in celebratory ways, in times of, uh, uh, of uh, special occasions, holidays, weddings, funerals, New Year. And, and I think that it's something that we can't um, just brush off with this sort of um, paternalistic view about alcohol and, and sickness and illness. And the reason I put that out there is because I don't want to say, you know, abstinence versus indulgence. Now we're starting to talk about feast or famine, uh, gluttony, you know, and all those other kinds of humanistic words, right? But here's what I so so I do think that alcohol plays a very important role to uh, to who we are as human beings. That said, I think that if you start taking alcohol in some of the contexts that we often see it, drinking alone, drinking too much, whether you're alone or with other people, drinking hard liquor, uh, not just for celebration, uh, but drinking it uh, for to treat anxiety or depression or loneliness or having another addict, some other addictive um, uh, issue that using it as, a, as part of a, of a salve uh, for other uh, ailments. And then, of course, genetics also play a role, can play a role into overconsumption of alcohol. That overconsumption is, is quite tricky because, and here is really the second um, main point I want to make, the first being alcohol is part of our humanity and part of human ritual. The second part is that there is no data that I know of, and I study this stuff, 
that alcohol itself, ethanol, E-T-O-H, for those of us who have studied chemistry, is actually beneficial to your health in any way, shape, or form. Ethanol, which is alcohol, or methanol, if you actually want to get the toxic form of it, um, is a toxin. It, it, it actually does make you disinhibited. It does make us feel great. It does, uh, it does make you drunk, all right? But in no way, shape, or form is ethanol beneficial for you. Ethanol poisons the liver. Ethanol poisons the heart. Ethanol poisons the brain. Again, take a drink, no problem. Your body will recover. Take two drinks, still going to recover. Take two drinks every day, okay, which is what was the healthy amount that people was thinking. Two glasses of wine a day is probably good for you. That alcohol in those two glasses of wine still is a poison for you. And so people who were going to embark on scheduling two drinks a day were, were going in the wrong direction. And I think this is what you're talking about, this course correction, which mm. is that the alcohol isn't good for you. What what? So what is it that's actually potentially beneficial? Or what did we recognize or what do we now recognize as maybe some upside of beverages that contain alcohol? Well, those fermented products of the grape skin in the case of wine, so red wine being better than white wine, uh, is really the fermented poly, the, the polyphenols that get extracted from grape skins. It's the what makes red wine red, not what makes wine uh, uh, capable of making you feel tipsy. It's the, it's the polyphenols. And so what's really interesting, and this is a research area that I'm actually pursuing now, is that if you were to actually take fermented, um, uh, if you take wine, uh, and you take the same from the same place that grew that wine and processed that wine, and you take a look at the grape juice, not fermented, and you compare the polyphenols and the sugars. So every, like they're, they're largely the same minus the alcohol. I'm really interested in, and this is my area, one of the areas of research I'm looking into. So are there real differences between grape juice versus wine? Uh, and, and, if, and if you took wine itself... And then remove the alcohol because you can remove alcohol. There are lab yeah. techniques to do that. Now you've got uh, alcohol-free wine. Do you actually have the same polyphenols and other uh, healthful benefits? Because I think this is what we really need to be doing studying food as medicine is not character assassinate uh, an entire beverage or any, or any food on the basis of, you know, like, well, we thought it was good. Now it's going to be bad. This is what causes whiplash. I, yeah, I yeah. say, for those of us who study this, let's take a measured approach. And so what I just told you is that, number one, why, uh, alcohol is part of our humanity. Number two, rituals are probably fine. You know, it's just part of who we are. Uh, number two is that, you know, alcohol itself, ethanol, the stuff that makes you tipsy, is never healthy. It's always a toxin. Your body can recover it most of the time. And number three is that the good stuff associated to wine and beer are really in the juice, in the liquid that's not alcoholic. It's the hops in the beer. It's the fermented uh, grape skin in the wine. And by the way, the reason we know this is almost certainly true is because if you take vodka, if you take pure straight liquor, okay, and you look at the health yeah. benefits of that, there's none. When you remove most of the <laughs> other stuff, you get no benefits and all downside. Right, right. This is, this, this is a great discussion because I think I love how you've given some pretext to this in, in terms of not wanting to sound 
puritanical and actually respecting the conviviality of what is quite a socially binding uh, common ingredient across multiple cultures, you know, from Europeans to Chinese to Indian American, everyone appears to have alcohol as this this binding um, uh, phenomena. Um, and what I'm interested in is actually whether we can separate out those uh, benefits into a uh, a drink that is seen as celebratory, but without the ethanol. And I, and I guess this is probably very hard to to, uh, to find an answer for, and I'm not expecting an answer whatsoever. But is there a minimum dose that despite the toxicity that ethanol can actually uh, induce in the liver, and we know it's a, a hepatoxic uh, uh, ingredient, if there, is there a small amount that induces a bit of toxicity that actually re- re- results in some benefit, very much in the same way that we understand plants like spices, uh, turmeric, can exert exert what's called a hermetic effect, things that you talk about in your books. Do you think there's any sort of ounce of truth in that? Or are you convinced that it's actually in the ferments, in the juice, that where the benefits are? You're asking a really interesting question. And I'm going to answer it first as a scientist, because I do research and I want to be fair to your question. Um, but then I'm going to answer it again in a way that I think is more common sense for for people who are not scientists. So as a scientist, what you're asking me is that, you know, um, like everything else, is the poison in the dose, you know? And this is an old concept that, you know, if you give a low dose, you actually get the cure. If you do a high dose, you get the poison. Um, her- her- uh, hormesis uh, is really this idea that a little is not enough. A little bit more is better. A little bit more gets you the best result. And then you keep going, you actually get harm. And What's that sweet spot, the bullseye from a dosing perspective? And so that would be a that would be a really, really worthy uh, area of research to take a look at is are there commonly consumed substances? We could talk about sugar as well, okay? Another demonized substance yeah, where, yeah. you know, what's this what's the sweet spot that we could actually find in the lab? in cells and animals. I think once you get to people, Rupi, um, we're, we're, the systems are much more complicated. There's gender difference. Are males and females the same? There's age differences. Is it different than a teenager versus a middle age versus an elderly? There are genetic differences, of course, which probably are somewhat minor, although for when it comes to alcohol, there are people, particularly Asian descent people, that often are have low or missing levels of alcohol dehydrogenase. So a tincture of alcohol to many Asians will cause them to come beet red and tipsy when, you know, to a good Irishman or a Scotsman would never <laughs> touch them. It would like, they would bounce off their breastplate. So, you know, I think that there's a genetics. Um, I also that there's a comorbidities, right? People have different underlying conditions. So I think this would be worthy to study conceptually in the lab but I, I hesitate in saying that there's even a little bit of alcohol that might be beneficial because we don't have the evidence for that. Although in theory, it may be true. I mean, here's a, here's a way to think about it. If you trigger a little injury, you're actually going to trigger your body's health defenses to repair. In triggering that repair, could we be setting off a domino effect for repair in other areas? 
Okay. So, uh, so, you know, I, I think theoretically that's, that's actually a really good question in practice. Uh, it's probably difficult to measure. And then here's the other kind of common, common sense concept when it comes to alcohol. And, you know, you and I have talked about this before on the show and, and I know a lot of people are curious about this because of the role of alcohol in in our society and our, in, in many of our individual lives. This is the whole thing. If you actually practice moderation and you don't drink too often and you don't drink too much, you're probably going to be just fine. But if you start to pursue or find an excuse to regularly drink alcohol day in and day out, week after week, and you know, this is sort of the pattern that I, I often see in, in patients, you know, you're setting yourself up, up for uh, a problem. It's going to happen, maybe not tomorrow. Maybe not next week, but eventually you'll reach the tipping point in your body because, you know, as we all get older, uh, we become more vulnerable uh, naturally, especially if you don't take care of yourself other in other ways. And these other ways, this is that complex global nature of health. When we're talking about health, we're talking about shoring up this remarkable uh, 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 thing called the human body that has many different ways that it protects who we are. It protects our well-being. And so I'm also, uh, while I'm hesitant to justify any benefits of ethanol, alcohol, I'm also very hesitant to demonize anything uh, categorically because our body can actually uh, stand back. So I'm saying that if you're actually toasting somebody at uh, New Year's or at a wedding, I would say, please celebrate your humanity. That's going to be just fine. Yeah, I love that answer. Uh, that's uh, completely in line with my thinking on on alcohol right now. Uh, as someone who has actually reduced their alcohol consumption massively over the last ten years, um, from med school days, um, now like you know, it, it it'd be rare to find a week where I consume more than one to two units. What I am noticing in the market are lower um, uh, ABV uh, drinks being promoted out there. So instead of a 40% uh, uh, ABV drink that you'll you'll find uh, like a gin, you, you see quarter uh, levels of that. Um, and that's interesting to see. And overall, I think that's a net positive thing as long as people still drink the same amount uh, and not having you know four drinks instead of the one that they would otherwise have. Um, this is really fun. I love like throwing these kind of questions at you because it, it promotes a healthy discussion. And this leans into my next question actually about coffee. Now I'm a I'm a coffee lover. I love my coffee. Um, I'm currently doing a coffee fast for 30 days. So I'm trying out different drinks. I'm having uh, a cacao drink. Uh, I'm adding. Uh, I'm having beetroot lattes. Uh, I'm making some hibiscus teas with mint and clove. I'm really experimenting with my hot drink in the morning. But I'd love your thoughts on coffee, and particular the ingredient of concern for some people, which is caffeine. Uh, because again, in a similar way to alcohol, you know, you get some divisive views. Some people think it's a fantastic ingredient. Some people think that the caffeine negates the. Uh, benefits of the coffee polyphenols in yourself. What is Dr. William Lee's take on on coffee? All right. I'm going to confess, I am somebody who loves coffee. I, I grew up as, uh, as with an Asian background uh, in a family that drank tea all the time. 
green tea, oolong tea. I was around I, my, my parents, my grandparents. They drank six to 10 cups easily a day. You could never find them without a cup of tea. But when I went to college, I um, started drinking coffee and I and I drank it, you know, kind of to stay up to do my homework and study for exams. That changed for me, actually, because I did it before I went to medical school to get, you know, to learn medicine. I did a gap year. And in my gap year, what I was what I set out to do was to study the connection between food, health and culture. That was something that's always interested me personally. So I spent a year doing that in Italy and in Greece. And so this was long before people talked about the Mediterranean diet. I, I was just naturally curious about this intersection of, of culture and food and health. And the first thing I noticed was the difference in the way that people drank coffee there. And so something that was sort of a, a side, side habit in college suddenly became something that I learned you know, you could become an aficionado. You could actually become sort of a a, a true uh, student of coffee, and and you could taste the differences. So I developed a lifelong habit uh, of having an espresso or two uh, in the morning, occasionally a cappuccino, uh, uh, and and then I would drink coffee throughout the day. Of course, in med school, all the time I drank coffee. Yeah. <laughs> probably not very good quality coffee. In fact, definitely not very good quality coffee. But but now now in my home, I actually do like coffee. So let, let's circle back. You know, now that I've actually made my you know confession uh, uh, to yes. Father Rupi, um, I, I will <laughs> I will I will now tell you that you know as a foodist medicine researcher, coffee like wine is uh, uh, goes way back. In fact. The, we don't even know where the origins of coffee came from, other than probably around Ethiopia and that part of Africa at some point where the coffee plant naturally grew. And coffee was, you know, cooked in different ways. I mean, prepared in different ways. You could boil the green coffee beans. You could roast them. What we see now at the uh, at the coffee at the cafe, you know, what the baristas actually do, or what you might do in your own little, you know, kitchen espresso maker. Totally different than how traditional coffee was actually made, um, uh, uh, and so there's so many ways of doing it. Uh, you get largely the same flavors, and you get different amounts of caffeine. I'm going to talk about caffeine in a second, but I, I'm putting this cultural context around it so um, so people don't feel like again this whole paternalistic, judgmental character assassination. There's yeah. a there's a real component to this. I remember when I went to um, uh, uh, Italy for the first time and, and lived there, I was amazed that depending on how finely you ground the coffee, the taste would change and the amount of caffeine that you would actually get also changed completely. And then I was uh, uh, dumbstruck uh, uh, and um, I think you would say gobsmacked when, uh, <laughs> when I went to Greece and I watched people just dump coffee grounds into a container. They would just boil and then pour the whole thing into the cup and you'd be drinking the coffee grounds. And yeah. I'm like, wow, that's amazing. Cause you get this giant <laughs> hit of caffeine, right? Um, I mean, Greek yeah. coffee is like the equivalent of matcha tea. You're just drinking everything. All right. Um, yeah, so yeah. the fact of the matter is, is that caffeine is very much part of the 
neuroactivating components of coffee that we tend to assign to coffee. But going way back to the origins of this beverage, which we don't, which we don't really know about, but it really again transcends different cultures where the plant was encountered or tr- beans were traded. Not so much in Asia, uh, but but mostly in sort of the Europe what, European side. I think Asia was mostly tea. The fact of the matter is that this became one of the common beverages, you know, after wa- drinking water that was consumed. The amount of caffeine is, a, is, is what we attribute it to, but there's many other polyphenols um, and even some dietary fiber that's found in the coffee bean. And depending on whether you filter it and how finely you ground it, you get other benefits. So look, I want to come back to caffeine in a second because that's what everybody thinks about. But a lot of people don't know this, but coffee contains a natural bioactive, a natural chemical from Mother Nature's pharmacy with an F, not a PH, that's called chlorogenic acid, chlorogenic acid, all right? And chlorogenic acid uh, does a lot of great things for our body. Number one, it promotes a healthy circulation, all right? It, it helps the lining of our blood vessels, the endothelium, function better. Chlorogenic acid in the lab has also been shown to actually cut off the blood supply to cancer. So it actually can sort of act as a volume switch to control how, where the healthy blood vessels are growing. So that's a really good thing. Chlorogenic acid also helps promote our stem cells for recovery. So it actually helps us, uh, our stem cells repair our own body from the inside out. Chlorogenic acid um, also is a prebiotic for our gut bacteria, healthy gut, healthy body, healthy immune system, healthy brain coming from a cup of coffee that has nothing to do with caffeine. All right. Chlorogenic acid, powerful antioxidant to protect us from uh, environmental exposures to the chemistry chemicals that we might have uh, from our water bottles, from the off-gassing of our cup, carpet, from the ultraviolet radiation from the sun. Chlorogenic acid is protective against that, like many other uh, bioactives. And then chlorogenic acid also lowers inflammation, improves immunity, and it actually triggers our metabolism to burn down harmful body fat. So in fact, it's good for our metabolism as well. And studies have actually shown that coffee or chlorogenic acid in the lab and in clinic and caffeine, but also caffeine-free coffee will do the same thing, will help you burn down excess harmful body fat. So all this to say that there is a, a, a plethora of natural chemicals that food as medicine people are studying. Oh, and one, one more thing I got to tell you. Why do... Why does coffee even have, why, why does a coffee bean even contain caffeine and chlorogenic acid? All right, here's the thing. Um, tea also contains some caffeine, right? So if you were a botanist, and I've spoken to many in my research, I was uh, amazed to learn that tea and coffee plants both produce caffeine because caffeine made by naturally by the plant uh, is a natural pesticide, insecticide. Ah, so bugs, oh, it, it keeps down, keeps away the bugs from ravaging the coffee plant. The, and and the, the later in the season, you harvest the bean, the, it, deeper into the summer when the bugs and the gnats and the flies and everything are crawling, are flying all around, they produce more and more um, uh, caffeine. Okay, so late harvest Ah, pigs have much more caffeine right now. Same as chlorogenic acid, but for a different reason. 
uh, uh, chlorogenic acid. Again, I learned this from a botanist and then really dug into it myself and Eureka, like the light bulb goes in my head, like, oh, I really get that now. So chlorogenic acid is an, a natural substance made by the plant as a wound healing response. And you, and you might say, what do you mean? Well, look, when you actually grow a plant in a natural way, no pesticides, the bugs are out there. The coffee is going to make more caffeine to keep the bugs down, protect them. The bugs are going to say, ah, eh, you know, I don't want to be eating that. But then, uh, but there are some will get through and the bugs nibble on the leaves and the stems of the coffee plant. And as a result of that injury to the leaf or the stem, the plant heals itself with chlorogenic acid. So it produces more. So when you actually are having organic coffee grown without pesticides, you will actually get more chlorogenic acid. In fact, up to threefold more chlorogenic acid than coffee beans grown in a conventional pesticide uh, setting. So not just less of the bad stuff, nobody wants pesticides in their coffee, but more of the good stuff. And that's what that that would in that would excite me. That would make give me reason to invest in organic coffee. Yeah, absolutely. And so your thoughts specifically on caffeine, it's wonderful to know that that's the original sort of pesticide, if you will, and that's the 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 actual reason why coffee has caffeine in itself. And I think there's just so many interesting chemicals of interest uh, that have their roots in the plant defense system. In terms of the caffeine content, it sounds as if if you opt for caffeine free, you're still going to get a lot of the benefits. For some people, I imagine caffeine is an issue. And uh, what would you say? Is it would you say there are some extra benefits if you have some caffeinated coffee or does it not really matter so much when ingested for, for, for users and humans? Yeah. So, so every individual is different. Uh, uh, someone like mm. me, I can drink a lot of coffee and the caffeine doesn't actually do, I'm not that sensitive to caffeine. All right. And in fact, I don't drink mm. my coffee for the caffeine. I, I like the taste. But for some people, and I and I know, yeah. and I have many friends that are like this. They're exquisitely sensitive to caffeine. If they have even a sip of coffee after five p.m. in the afternoon, they'll be up all night. They just, you know, maybe some of it's psychosomatic. But but the bottom line is that um, they, it really it really agitates them. Some people who have um, uh, uh, trigger happy heart rhythms, like atrial fibrillation. If you drink coffee, coffee and with a lot of caffeine, it can trigger your AFib, which we as doctors know is a dangerous condition, and that you need to really try to prevent your heart from being uh, from getting into that situation. And so, another example about uh, uh, it could be in your brain, it could be your heart, um, uh, and and caffeine, by the way, is not just uh, activating uh, in one way. Caffeine can also actually by itself uh, can stimulate your metabolism as well. So a little bit actually is not going to be bad for you. And when you have decaf coffee, let's say you're sensitive to caffeine, but you like the taste of coffee, definitely go for the um, uh, decaffeinated. But I'll tell you the way they the way that the the manufacturers do decaffeination, it's impossible to remove all the caffeine. They can remove ninety yeah. percent of it, but there's still a little tiny bit. You can still get a little bit of caffeine. And so you might, yeah. so even decaf coffee, you're getting a little bit of that. And again, caffeine is not a categorically good guy or bad guy. 
if your body can tolerate it in the decaffeinated side, you're probably fine if you like the taste of coffee. If you find any amount of coffee is somehow makes you feel uncomfortable, I always tell people, first and foremost, listen to your body, all right? Don't follow a trend mm. or a recommendation from anybody, ourselves included, if when you try the food or the beverage, it makes you feel bad. That's a warning signal. That's a red flag, a distress signal uh, inside your body. You should always pay heed to that. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's the same with a lot of trendy ingredients, you know, down to traditional uses of ginger. For, for a lot of people, ginger is quite um, uh, an irritant to people's heart rhythms. They feel hot, flustered. Same thing with mushrooms. Mushrooms are becoming very popular, but they have genuine medicinal value and people need to be respectful of that actually because i think shiitake rhodiola chaget they're just being mixed into these concoctions without real due diligence of like how the combinations can react in certain people so always be yeah i want to i want to make a comment about um, mushrooms because i think that's really yeah important i've been you know i've studied mushrooms first of all i love to eat mushrooms I've, i've studied mushrooms i like to cook mushrooms as well uh and i and i and i have an opinion about the current uh state of mushroom or mycology you know the the fandom of mushrooms okay yeah. First of all, mushrooms are pretty powerful uh, 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 fungi. Uh, you know, they're uh, and they're the, the way easiest way to think about mushrooms that there's culinary mushrooms that are used in cooking. Mm. You know, your portobello, your white button mushrooms, your morels, um, and yes, shiitake mushroom also is a culinary mushroom. Okay, but then mm. there's medicinal mushrooms. And you've got your lion's mane, you've got your shaga, you've got your um, reishi, a whole bunch of turkey tail, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Shiitake also falls into that category as well. Okay. Um, and maitake mm. also bridges culinary and, and, and medicinal. Yeah. But what I tell people to do is that if you're trying to incorporate mushrooms into your everyday life, think about that in the culinary sense, because you're going to get the vitamin D, you're going to get the um, dietary fiber, the beta uh, glucans, the healthy things that activate your body's health defenses and activate your metabolism, uh, help you burn body fat just by having the culinary version. And I think in the, let's call it the Western world, the world of trend making and trend setting, some very excited person uh, reached over into the um, canon of Asian medicinal mushrooms Okay, uh, and and started pulling out these um, mushrooms that were never eaten regularly, but only used for healing purposes. And this is the reishi, the the cordyceps, the you know uh, the turkey tail, everything, all that kind of stuff. Ganoderm, lucidum. Look, it, it's the stuff that you can find easily on social media. You can find them actually in a grocery store now. Believe it or not. Yeah, those contain researchers like me have now discovered that those medicinal mushrooms contained previously undiscovered polysaccharides, peptides and other small molecules that actually are not present in the culinary mushrooms. They're not present in the edible stuff, the portobellos, the porcinis, but they're present in these medicinal mushrooms. Medicinal mushrooms, by the way, tend to be very, very bitter. You know, they're hard to actually Mm. have by themselves. And so, uh, and yeah. you know, the bitter, bitter, bitter tends to be kind of a sign of a medicinal property, right? So 
what I tell people is don't mix mushrooms into one category. You got your culinary mushrooms that you can cook with every day and enjoy them and eat. Good source of dietary fiber, good for gut health, good for your metabolism. Then there's um, there are healing mushrooms, medicinal mushrooms. Um, take a look. If you're going to do your research on these, take a look at their traditional medicinal uses. You know, were they used for uh, uh, illnesses that were characterized by hot versus cold? You know, the Asian way of thinking about it. Look at their uses in Ayurvedic medicine. They were not used on a daily basis to be ground up in your pepper mill to actually put into your coffee or sprinkle on your salad. This is a modern translation of things that were used originally in medicine. By the way, you would not go into your medicine cabinet, okay, and take a puddle of pills and open them up and put them in a spice grinder and sprinkle them on your on your salad either. So I would say be careful with these medicinal mushrooms. We don't know enough about them when they're used in the outside of the healing setting, supervised healing setting, to know what they do. So this is an area of research. I think the whole mycology field is super fascinating. We are sure to discover more health benefits from these incredible medicinal mushrooms. But I just caution people that if you want to get the real benefits of mushrooms, for the most part, you can get them just from the culinary side that you would get you would see a, a home chef, your your mother or your grandmother would have cooked with them. Yeah, I really appreciate you taking the time to do a deep dive into that because I think it's very trendy right now. I'm very interested, but I'm also very cautious because of respect of the medicinal impact of these new novel substances that have been used for millennia. But from a research point of view, we, we don't know enough about them. And I think mixing them the analogy that you made there about mixing you know medicines in your medicine cabinet you wouldn't do that and certainly wouldn't do that on a daily basis i think it's that's you know it's certainly caution um that people need to heed so i really appreciate you you um you talking about that and actually as you were talking about that you mentioned you were tea drinker uh, before so you had ulam uh matcha has caffeine in um but are from anecdotes of people who are sensitive to the caffeine in coffee, but they can tolerate matcha, that there appears to be um, some uh, better suitability of matcha to people who are sensitive, even though matcha uh, on the face of it has similar amounts of caffeine. Is there, are there any other elements of matcha that A, provide benefits, but also can explain a phenomena that I see anecdotally? And this is what I love to talk about is the origins of food, right? So what is matcha? I mean, matcha is this beautiful green powder, fine green powder that is so fine. You need a whisk to really kind of get it to stir into hot water properly. That's the traditional, what they call it, ceremonial matcha. You can also buy just simple uh, powdered mm. matcha. You put it into a hot water and it dissolves instantly. Okay, crystallized matcha. But here's the thing. If you understand tea, you'll realize that, and I've, I've been actually at, at tea plantations uh, in Asia. My, my mm. great uncle who lived to 104 lived at the base of a tea mountain. So he used to take me walking around wow. the tea plantations. Um, uh, you know, when he was in his nineties, he was walking independently and he was drinking, attributing his longevity to tea drinking. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So um, mostly little ladies would go out there with a bamboo hamper, pick leaves at different times of the season. In the spring, they get the early buds, which not, there's not many insects out, so the caffeine is low. Later on, 
uh, in the summertime and later in the summer, more bugs out there, they pick the leaves and a second crop of picking, there's more caffeine. So again, mm. the time, the season of picking, the time in the season also matters in the amount of caffeine that's in there, number one. So it depends on your matcha, what part of the season it was picked on in terms of the quote caffeine content. Now, mm. the other thing about matcha is that it's quite different from loose leaf tea that you might find in a Chinese restaurant. It's very different than the tea you would have in an English uh, afternoon tea ceremony in a tea in a bag, you know, yeah. or steeped tea, or you get the pure liquid, but you don't see the leaves or you have the dunking bags. Okay. Um, now matcha is actually the powder. How is matcha made? Well, about three weeks before harvest in Japan, where the original matcha was developed, uh, methodology was developed, they, they throw a canopy over the leaves so that they don't get direct sun anymore. That canopy or shade mellows out the strong flavors of tea. Okay. Ah. We don't know exactly how, but it changes the chemical makeup to make it a little bit more mellow, right? Less direct sunshine. You don't need as much sunscreen. Your, your skin's not going to react as much. That's what they do. They actually put a canopy over to shade the matcha plant. I want to say it's 21 days or 20 days before harvest. And then when they pick them, they take the leaves, they dry them. Okay. They're dried in the open air and then they kind of roast them very, very slightly. They're not oxidized. All right. Most tea, especially English breakfast tea, you know, or Earl Grey, highly oxidized. So it's a processing. The processing changes the flavor. Uh, alters the chemical structure, the chemicals in them a little bit. But for matcha, they don't really, really oxidize it deeply. Then they ground the entire leaf into this powder. So whereas if you are steeping tea in a bag or in a pot, you are not getting any of the leaf. There's no fiber. You're not getting all of the polyphenols. You're just getting whatever uh, dissolves out into the water. For matcha, you are getting every bit of diet of fiber that's in the tea leaf that fiber means that you are actually activating your gut microbiome it is a powerful uh, prebiotic that feeds your gut microbiome so matcha is much more gut healthy than other teas because you're getting that big bolus of fiber it also contains all of the polyphenols you're not leaving it the chance that some of it might dissolve out some of it might be stuck in the leaf right? In a tea bag, you throw the tea bag away, you're throwing away some polyphenols. Here, you're grounding everything and you're drinking everything. Now you're getting the full dose, everything that that tea plant can actually contribute to you. And in addition to the catechins uh, and the theoflavins and the theobromines and all these other things that are found in tea that can activate other parts of your, um, uh, your brain, other parts of your metabolism, other parts of your body's health defenses. You're just getting more with matcha because of the nature of, of what it's at. So if you ever go to a Japanese restaurant and you're sitting at the sushi bar and they ask you and they want some green tea, oftentimes they'll pour you some matcha tea and you, you know you're getting really high test stuff. Matcha is the espresso. Yeah. Yeah, of tea. Yeah, I I love matcha. My my wife has recently uh, moved on to matcha from her her coffee, um, her two coffees in in a day, and she's really enjoying it. And there's just so much, you know, ceramic around it. You know, they're just 
the ritual, the smell, the different qualities. And it's just, again, another world of flavor that people uh, can really lean into and also uh, rest uh, in the knowledge that it's actually providing all those wonderful benefits that you were just talking about to the gut and, and the other chemicals that you consume. And we've talked about pesticides quite a bit on this and the natural pesticides in terms of uh, the, the natural chemicals that are produced by plants and how those confer benefits. But there are some people that say, um, you know, in the in in the realm of lectins, um, that they're deadly and that they're, you know, not uh, something that we should be consuming or high lectin foods. Um, I wonder what your thoughts on, on that are, because a lot of the healthy foods that I consume uh, would be considered high lectin. And a lot of the foods that you talk about as well might be considered high lectin. So there are thoughts on that. And I, again, it's, this is an open discussion. I would love yeah. your thoughts on, okay. on lectins. Uh, lectins have become known in the public uh, as sort of a harmful, deadly aspect of foods you must avoid. And I can tell you that nothing could be further from the truth. And the reason I say that with authority, as a researcher, um, I study blood vessels and, and I study the body and I study what's inside the body. Our own body is filled with lectins. There are hundreds and hundreds of different kinds of lectins. Um, you can't, you know, you can't just say that lectins are bad for you. You must stay away from them because our, they're filled, our bodies are they're inside our body. In fact, lectins inside our body mm. are part of the connective tissue that hold us together. They are like the grout between bricks on the brick wall. They, they help us, our, they help our cells stick together. They help us function. You know, if you want your teeth to stick into your jaw and not fall out, you need lectins. Um, you know, uh, so every aspect of our body will have lectins. And listen, as a researcher, we, we, we stain for lectins. We know this because we do special stains for lectins when we're studying human cells or animal cells. And you can see them everywhere. Okay. And they are performing in fun important biological healthful functions. Form and function are what lectins actually do. Now, there are same, similarly, if they're present in humans, they're probably present in our food system as well. They're present in animal food, seafood, uh, poultry, uh, you know, uh, uh, livestock. They're also present in plant-based foods because they hold things together. They're not the only thing to hold things together, but they hold things together. Of the hundreds and hundreds of different types of lectins, indeed, there are some, a few, that are actually deadly poisons. And you can order them from a chemical warehouse if you're studying those poisons, all right? But they are not the things that you would find in the grocery store or the farmer's market. I want to really kind of take down everybody's anxiety and do a reset. So if you were a laptop, I would just, you know, control shift and reboot you, hard reboot, <laughs> okay, to say lectins are inside us. They're perfectly fine. They're everywhere. There are some poisonous lectins, but they're not in your tomatoes. They're not in your eggplants. And, you know, it's one of these urban legends. I, I want to say, Rupi, that probably, and I'm, I'm, I, I like to think the positively of most people, uh, probably some well-intentioned person um, read about lectins as a poison and then started to do their research and found, oh, my gosh, tomatoes have lectins. Oh, my gosh, all these other foods have mm. lectins. Well, then they just started to connect the dots, uh, 
I would say inadvertently uh, assigning a negative attribute without understanding the all the details between the different families of lectins that are that are out there. Same thing, by the way, you know, happens with phytoestrogens and plants like soy. Yeah. Some well-intentioned person said, "Oh, human breast cancers are estrogen sensitive. Some are human estrogen sensitive, and soy has phytoestrogens." They ignore the phyto part. They're estrogen, estrogen. Wow, must avoid estrogens. We would never do this as sort of scientists or physicians. If you actually look at the chemical structure, mm. they don't look anything the same. Plant phytoestrogens block human estrogens, just like Mother Nature's tamoxifen. For those of you who are familiar with, you know, hormonal therapy for breast yeah. cancer. So, again, one of the things that I think is so important that um, you know you, your podcast is able to do is to surface these controversial topics. And bring out people who you know are able to who study them and who are able to bring a different perspective to help clear up the confusion. And in some cases, if there's an urban legend, kind of a false notion, a commonly held false notion, just to clear that up, do the reset so that people are, don't fear their food. I think there's way too much fear about food. It's not a, it, it it doesn't help us embrace the healthful properties of of what we can get in the kitchen yeah and and you know looking at this from a much broader picture and this is what i love about your work and and the content that you're putting out we're trying to actually widen the palette of the entire population because right now the commonly consumed foods are around 10 to 12 and they're very, very similar. So actually what we need is diversity. So we should be leaning into all these incredible foods, the nightshade family, the legumes, the uh, the green brassica vegetables, the herbs and spices. This is super, super important for us to do on a much grander scale. So, and I agree, I think it it, it is likely well-intentioned but now is the time to do the reset. So that's definitely something that we're pushing over here on the podcast. Well, as well. And, I, and I'll also tell you that if you look at these so-called blue zones, they, you know, where people live long and live well, okay, or live well as they age as long as possible. I heard that in um, Okinawa, uh, which is one of the blue zones, there are, there's like a 90 year old lady female rock band that goes on tour. <laughs> that's how healthy these people are, you know, beyond the, the obvious thing that they're eating a lot of plants and, 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 and they're exercising and they've got social, good social structure is the fact that the healthiest um, parts of the world happen to come from some of the healthiest cultures of the traditional cultures of the world, mm. which is in Asia um, and in the Mediterranean. Asia is not one country or a few countries. Asia is a whole plethora of countries, dozens of countries, as is the Mediterranean, all the countries surrounding the Mediterranean uh, Sea. So if you take a look at uh, how people, societies in, in those areas of the world have lived for generations, maybe hundreds of years, you know, think about it. I mean, have you ever been uh, back to, you know, um, your ancestral land or I've been back to China? Absolutely. Yeah. If you go... Um, back there and you're and you go out to a restaurant or you eat at someone's home or uh, you have somebody come over to help you prepare some food every day is a different cornucopia of ingredients and flavors yeah people don't do mm. the same thing they don't rinse and repeat every single day like we often do 
in Western, modern Western countries. Same soup and salad, the same, you know, the same veggies over and over and over again. Diversity not only is beneficial for the soul and beneficial for, you know, our brain, because uh, diversity actually exercises our brain. When you're recognizing different foods, it's a brain workout. So you don't have to go to the gym. You can just go to the kitchen to get a little yeah. brain workout every day. But it's also good for our gut. Our gut microbiome craves diversity. The more diverse foods you eat, the more diversity, uh, the more the, 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 the ecosystem of our gut uh, fleshes itself out, which ultimately helps us lower inflammation in our body. So something easy, which is to actually eat a lot of different things that are good for you, Actually, we get the payoff from inside our gut. Mm, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's such an important message to get out there that the diversity is is the one thing that I would say people really need to invest a lot more time in. And just you know, having spent time in India, exactly that they eat according to the seasons. They have herbs and spices. They have yes, traditional recipes, but they're always just you know constantly on their feet and thinking about ways in which to combine different foods. Um, and and and. On that vein, I love this discussion. I just love like, you know, having an open discussion about all these different topics because they're, they're just so important. One of the things I, I feel, again, on, on two, uh, in two areas is uh, misinformed is um, uh, the healthfulness of oils. So there's a camp that suggests that we shouldn't be having any oils whatsoever because they are refined, they are processed, they are very high in fat, high in calories, et cetera, et cetera. So that's one camp. We shouldn't be eating oils at all. There's another camp that uh, reasonably have suggested seed oils are not healthy for us. Um, and there are plenty of different seeds. Oils. There's, uh, we have rapeseed in the UK, also known as canola, um, sunflower oil, uh, pumpkin oils. There's also super healthy oils, extra virgin olive oils, there's uh, ghee, there's traditional fats that we tend to use in cooking. I would love to know Dr. William Lee's take on uh, those different uh, topics. Oils, are they healthy? And which ones, if they are, are healthier? Okay. Look, oils are all fats. And our body needs some fats, but not too many fats. So regardless of which fat you choose, if you have too much of it, it's going to overload uh, your body. The way that we started this conversation talking about overload of sugars and carbs, we need sugars. We need carbs to run our engine, the far area of our body. We need that. And we need oil too. We need some fats, but if you overload on it, you're going to run into trouble. Okay. So that said, I will tell you that the oils that I like to use in my own kitchen, um, and I think we've had this conversation before, but I really cook with two types of oil. I, I like to cook with uh, olive oil, extra virgin olive oil is mm. my preferred. And I can, I, I also will enjoy extra virgin olive oil uncooked, like outside of cooking, but I also cook with it as well. I'm always mindful of how much oil I use. All right. And I never mm. deep fry things. Um, because that's just automatically inviting a huge amount of oil. That's just my preference in, in my kitchen. Um, I will use avocado oil as well. Um, uh, that's also a healthful oil, uh, and, and it's very light, and you can actually cook at high heat. I like to cook in different techniques, and so I, I like to use oils that are able to actually take high heat, like avocado oil can be cooked at a higher temperature than olive oil. Olive oil, by the way, can also be cooked at high temperature. That's also a little bit of a 
urban legend. Yeah. But it has a lot of extra flavor to it that avocado oil doesn't. Now, both of those happen to be healthier oils. But again, the quantity, the amount um, uh, is, is, is uh, important. Now, when it comes to olive oil, uh, you know, most of the studies, epidemiology studies, looking at the correlation between the association between uh, olive oil and health has shown, you know, people who have olive oil, who, who use olive oil, consume olive oil are healthier than people who don't consume olive oil. Well, how much is, how much is the dose? I'm always into the food dose. The healthy yeah. amounts tend to um, uh, revolve around three tablespoons of olive oil a day. Generally, now I don't recommend that people go out and you know, take a measuring spoon and, and drink that. I know some people hearing this are going to go immediately. I'm going to go out and buy a measuring spoon for olive oil. <laughs> Look, if you cook foods using olive oil, try not to use three more than three tablespoons. Or if you do, try to drain the oil so you're not getting too much more than that. So that's kind of like this the reasonable man's way or reasonable person's way of looking at this. Okay, so... We know olive oil is healthy for you. It's a healthier mm -hmm. fat. It also has um, uh, lots of bioactives, which give you the flavor of, uh, of the olives, the back of the throat um, mm -hmm. uh, uh, taste for olive oil. That's because it's still got the, and the extra virgin means that it's not filtered. You're getting the little bits of the olive. Mm -hmm. Again, like wine, you're getting the kind of the good stuff from the plant itself. It's not the fat. It's actually the stuff that is floating around in there extra virgin olive oil. Um, avocados. Avocados have something called avocatin B that's also present in the flesh and therefore in a little bit in the oil that activates your metabolism. So not only do you get some healthier fats, you also get some extra bioactives as well. That's one way to think about these oils. Now, back to your question about like unhealthy oils. My, this is my feeling is that because I'm very reluctant to do character assassination of foods. All right. Oh, nut oils are bad. Let's 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 put a, a scarlet A in all of them, and then let's imprison them all. Yeah. I don't I don't go for that. I would say that if you are using any oil in moderation, it's probably fine. Uh, be very careful mm. about saturated fats. Even the, but even for that, the jury is still out about ghee. I mean, ghee might, yeah. might, might appears to be a healthier way of using, you know, the, the clarified butter is better because of the clarification mm. process. We're still actively researching this. So I think that, you know, a lot of the stuff out there in, um, in social media and on the internet that categorically uh, denounce uh, one entire category of food on the basis of a theory is probably the, you know, kind of the premature death uh, kind of concept. I think I would stick with the things that we know are beneficial, consume those in moderation, and then try not to overload on anything. Because by the way, let's say you found this magic oil, health oil, that's good for you. You still wouldn't want to drink, uh, uh, drink that, uh, consume that in, in large quantities anyway, every day. Yeah. 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 It's, it's definitely the heuristic that I use myself. I go for the oils that are appropriate for the cuisine. I go for the oils that I know have health benefits attached to them. I think there's a demonization of seed oils right now. I personally just don't like the flavor of uh, quite refined seed oils. Um, other than if I'm making uh, a, 
a chili uh, oil. So it's just an easier fat to use when you take it to a high temperature. I haven't tried it with avocado oil though. Um, so I might I might actually try give it, that in give the it kitchen. A, give it a shot. Give it a shot. I will, yeah. Yeah, I'll let you know when you're in the studio next time, maybe you can try it on we'll, something that I'll prepare. We'll, we'll, make, we'll, we'll do a chili oil uh, taste test. Yeah, yeah, oils. absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Um, you mentioned one thing, uh, organic earlier uh, when you were talking about coffee and um, uh, you prefer to go organic with coffee. What, what are your thoughts on organic versus um, uh, conventional produce? Because uh, we just did a podcast on organic versus conventional and my my personal stance has changed. I'm leaning more toward organic, but it is fraught with difficulty and inconsistencies within the research itself. Uh, but it, it feels like there is a bit of a turning point at an agricultural level, at a, at a governmental policy level, where they're more appreciative of organic, which I think was previously seen as a bit conspiratorial. I wonder if your thoughts have have morphed or changed, or, or whether you're you're either pro or against uh, organic. Yeah, foods. again, you know, I've been learning along the way, as you have, uh, about organic. I originally. When the concept of organic first came out, and I think it was in the 90s, we started seeing this more commonly, certainly in the United States, I actually rebelled against organic. And the reason was I was seeing all these beautiful foods that, you know, look like they were painted by, you know, Rembrandt, uh, and they were super expensive. Uh, and I just thought, uh, and the argument was you get less pesticides by grown, by grown more naturally. And I just felt bad. I, I literally had this internal revulsion about paying more money for less harmful ingredients or uh, chemicals. Why would I want to do that? You know, like what what kind of um, what kind of sick world are we in where we actually have to pay more for less harmful things? Uh, and and so, but I have actually changed my mind. Because over time, the botanists have actually been educating me about, as we were talking about with coffee, the role of a plant living in its natural ecosystem that's unperturbed by artificial chemicals. All right. And so I thought about it less from the health side. I learned about it from the plant side. I, I'm, I'm one of these really curious people. So when somebody is an expert in something that I, I, you know, that I happen to encounter, I, I want to know everything about it. And so the botanist told me, you know, um, the best way for a plant to grow, for a fruit or vegetable that we eat, the edible part to be produced, is really to grow with natural sunlight, with natural rain, uh, uh, with natural soil irrigation, uh, and, um, and surprisingly to me, with natural insects. So you've got, um, and, other, and other creatures. So by the way, you've got the microbiome of the soil. We think about gut microbiome, but there's actually a microbiome of the soil. There's also a microbiome that grows around the plants itself, natural bacteria on the plants. Yeah, you're rinsing off for 60 seconds, and when you take the plant home, you think you're getting rid of all that bacteria? Nope. We're eating, most of these vegetables are slightly probiotic, all right? Um, but but the, the bacteria on the plants actually play a huge role. But these insects that we don't see, and if we saw them, we probably wouldn't want to see them for most of us that are flying around, crawling around, nibbling on the leaves and the stems. This is the whole thing. Most of the insects don't, birds will eat the fruit 
or eat, you know, but, but insects actually eat the leaves. Uh, they, they like the leaves more. Okay. And so they nibble on the leaves, they nibble on the stem and, and a universal part of plant biology seems to be when grown in the most natural setting, which is better for the plant, that the plant's reaction to wounding by having these little nibbles and injuries is to produce more polyphenols, more bioactives, ah. more chlorogenic acid. In the case of strawberries, mm. which was published in the journal Nature, organic strawberries compared to grown without pesticides, compared to strawberries grown with uh, 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 pesticides, the plants definitely looked better uh, when there was pesticides used because you got the leaves are intact, there are fewer bugs. Um, there were more uh, uh, fruits that were harvestable because uh, the yield was better because there was less bugs nibbling on the plant. But when you looked inside each strawberry, the, the elagic acid, which is one of the uh, bioactives found in strawberries, uh, was in the organic part, was 30% higher because the elagic acid is produced by the plant as a wound healing response to heal that area that the bug nibbled on. They make more elagic acid, like the coffee plant makes more chlorogenic acid. Um, okay. And so I, as I started to realize that this was a universal phenomenon, it's the same thing for brassica. You have to have, you know, leafy greens, kale grown in an organic environment. You're going to get more of the sulforaphanes that are beneficial for every aspect, every defense system in our body and our metabolism. I started to realize that this discovery of nature, you know how like Darwin discovered, you know, natural selection by going to the Galapagos and looking at finches and turtles and things like that. Well, look, botanists are really discovering another part of how nature uh, has developed a program to protect plants that are growing in the most natural environment. By the way, the other thing that has made me more, um, uh, given me higher affinity for organic growing, okay? I, I, I still have a little bit of catch in my chest when I think about paying a lot more money. And so the price has to come down. Sure. The governments need to make mm. the price come down. But, but also pesticides are not good for our planet. They're not good for our soil. All right. Um, and in some cases, like a strawberry, for example, or an apple or a peach, the pesticides that are sprayed on actually penetrate the skin. You cannot wash those off. All right. I mean, think about how mm -hmm. if you try skinning a strawberry, forget about it. All right. It never happened. <laughs> and you're getting like there's I think a I think one study by the University of Massachusetts showed if you spray with pesticides, 20 percent, it'll penetrate the pesticide will penetrate. 20% into the skin and stay there. You cannot yeah. wash it off. Mm. You know, that's enough to convince me that like I'm not for especially the thin skin of fruits and vegetables. I, you know, I, I think I'd rather, I want more of the good stuff, the good polyphenols. Um, and I don't want to be, I definitely don't want to be eating those artificial chemicals. We now know that that stuff is going to be bad for our gut microbiome. We know the gut microbiome and gut health protects brain health, protects, you know, immune health lowers inflammation. So I don't want to go there. I think there's a lot 
a lot more reasonable approaches now to uh, any exogenous chemicals, including plastics uh, that unfortunately are littered throughout our produce and our um, uh, our bodies as well. There was a study, I think, uh, looking at the uh, quantity of plastic consumed in a typical year in Europeans, and it was around the size of a credit card every single day. And I think there's more and more research looking at the negative effects of plastics in general, and I guess uh, pesticides as well. And I, and I guess, you know, we really want to take that pragmatic approach, uh, the precautionary approach uh, before we sort of allow uh, the contamination of our of our food supply chain um, with these chemicals without like due diligence of what the long-term consequences well, are. Well, and, and this is where policy, you know, like, you know, I, I don't like to get into public conversations about, you know, one side of the fence or the other side politically. But I will say anybody who's sure. listening to this or watching this, you know, if you have a voice to support officials who are making governmental policies or rules that help to um, make our planet healthier, it's likely to also make our bodies healthier as well. To me, if you only had one reason to vote uh, in a positive direction, uh, regardless of what it is, vote mm. for yourself <laughs> because that's, <laughs> that, that's you know, like I always vote for myself. And I think that that's the reason we need planetary policies. It's not about the country. It's about the whole planet. Better for the planet, better for the plant, better for the plant, better for our person. That's just how it works. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I want to get around to some quick fire questions because I know my audience are dying to ask you a few of these uh, uh, topics around um, fat burning foods. Now, we talked about coffee. I know that's one of your favorite ingredients. What are, let's say, three or four of your favorite fat burning foods? And perhaps we should preface this. I know I just said quick fire, but perhaps we should preface it by what we mean by fat burning foods uh, as well. Okay. So earlier we were talking about the body like your car that you are filling up with uh, fuel. The car uses petrol, the body uses food to get its fuel. Whatever you eat is going to be turned into fuel. That fuel gets stored in our um, muscles and in our body fat. Okay. And, uh, and a lot, many people don't realize this, but I wrote about this in my book, Eat to Beat Your Diet, that um, our uh, in your car, your fuel tank is on the side of the car, and you put the petrol into a little uh, through the nozzle into a little hole, and you fill it up. The tank fills up with petrol, and then the nozzle goes click, and now you can't put any more in there. And then you put it away, and you drive off um, uh, into the sunset. Okay. Now, in your in the body, what actually happens is that uh, we uh, are pulling over not to the petrol station; we're pulling over to the kitchen table. And we're loading up on our fuel. We're what we're a conversation we're having is to please, please load up on higher quality fuel because whether whether mm. regardless of what you believe, your body is a Ferrari. So please take care of it as you would, um, you know, the rate to make your car the race, make your body the race car it is. That fuel goes into your fat, um, is stored in your fat. Our fat cells, which are called adipocytes, are actually fuel storage tanks, and actually. Fuel, those few storage tanks formed when we were still in our mother's womb, okay, uh, in the uterus, uh, right next to blood vessels. So, you know, most people don't realize this when because when you step out of the shower and out of the corner of your eye, you see, 
you know, a lump or a bump under your arm or the muffin top or under your chin. You don't like, you don't like that. That's not where fat started in your body. That healthy fat that's our fuel tank started when we were, when your mom, when your dad's sperm met your mom's egg and you were just a ball of cells, blood vessels were first formed, nerves were formed next, it needs circulation, you need electrical signals to power your organs. And then the third thing that formed, third important organ that formed was body fat. These adipose tissues mm. formed like bubble wrap around blood vessels. They wrapped around the blood vessel, right? And so people who are listening will go, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. I don't have fat around my blood vessel. Yes, you do. That's where they formed. And the reason that fat first formed around blood vessels is because when you eat food, your fuel, the fuel goes into your circulation, your bloodstream, and you need to be able to put the fuel into the fuel tank, which are your fat cells, the adipocytes. So naturally, it makes sense to put the fuel tank right next to where the fuel is running through. Okay. Now, when we go about our ordinary day with normal body weight, this is what's happening. We, we eat, we store fuel. When we're eating, our body is focused on storing fuel. When we're not eating, including intermittently fasting when we're sleeping, our body's, our metabolism switches gears like in a car, and now we're focused on burning fuel. So yes, we do burn fat. We, burn, we do burn fuel from our fat while we're sleeping. You're not working out. You're not exercising. You're not swimming. You're not lifting. Okay. Uh, you're not doing, you're not doing uh, anything exertional. You're sleeping in your body, your metabolism burning body fat. Okay. Now, this is how we're hardwired. Eat, load up fuel. We're focusing on loading up fuel. Just like when you're at the gas station, uh, what do you do when you're at the gas station? You turn off the engine. Don't burn the fuel while you're filling up the tank, right? Okay. So, but what do you do when you're done filling up the tank? Turn the car back on and go. So when we're turn so when on. we're not actually loading up on fuel, we're burning it. That's how our body is hardwired. Now, what happens if we ate mm. the, if we all ate the perfect amount every day, just what our body needed um, uh, to see? They call it eucaloric. All right, eucaloric means you know you're not getting too much, you're not getting too little. This mm. would be the 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 I idealistic you know uh, calorie in, calorie out. If that's all you cared about, you didn't have one extra calorie in that you didn't burn. That day, it's a complicated mathematical equation, and it's not practical and it's not healthy. But if you did that, you know, um, you you wouldn't need to burn. I mean, you would be burning all the fat from your fuel that you need. You never accumulate any extra fat. Okay, you'd have just the right amount of body mm -hmm. fat. That's not reality. In reality, Rupi, and every one of your listeners and viewers knows this. We sometimes eat too much, and we sometimes don't eat the right things. All those things conspire to putting more fuel, more low quality fuel into our body. And what does our body have to do? That's loading into our fuel tanks, our, which is into our fat. Now, because our fat gets loaded mm -hmm. up, we can fill up our, uh, our fuel tanks pretty large. Unlike a car, which has a metal fuel tank, you can't make it, you can't overflow it. If you, uh, if you didn't have the clicker on the fuel tank, uh, what would happen? You fill up the tank, if, you, if it kept on overloading, it would run right out of the car, down the side of the car, along the wheels. It'd pool around your feet. And what would happen? You'd be standing at the petrol station in a, in a pool of a dangerous, toxic, flammable mess. Same thing in the body. If we overloaded our fuel, 
Unfortunately, our body isn't hardwired with a clicker. Okay, we our body is designed by evolution to give us store as much fuel as possible because we did not always live in a land of abundance where you can drive down to the corner convenience store to buy something to eat. We used to have to like work pretty hard to get our fuel. So if you had it, you ate it. Now, here's the deal. Day after day, week after week, month after month, if we're actually overloading on fuel, the a fat cell, a dipocyte, can expand from its normal state three times, 300% its size. Small fat cells or fuel tank can get big fuel tank. Think about it like a water balloon, right? You remember when you were a kid at a birthday party, you take a small balloon, you can blow it up much larger, okay? And it feels kind of tenuous. It's sloshing around. You know, if you dropped it, it would actually explode. You have to be careful with your big water balloons. That's what happens when we overload in our fuel, okay? And poor quality fuel will actually allow it to spend even faster. Now, in our body, we don't, we don't, we can overload and spill out um, our fuel. That happens um, when you when your fat cells are like way overloaded. But our body has this unique ability to make more fuel tanks. Your car can't do it, but our body mm. can. So if you load up on a fat cell and it's completely full, that water balloon stretched to the hilt is tied off, and now you got to get a new one on there. That's what our body does. Our body uses stem cells, adipocyte stem cells. It just grows more fat, grows new fuel tanks. That new fuel tank, now you can fill that up. Now you can fill up three times larger than it's supposed to be, tie it off. Oh, you're still eating more calories? Let's go take some more fat and make some more fat. So this idea that we, that I, I went to medical school with, like you're born with all the fat cells you ever have, and it just they just get bigger, mm. wrong. We now know we can make more and more fat. So you can see now, you know, and I'm hoping that the listeners are getting this, if you have years, a lifetime of overloading your fuel into your fuel tanks and your body's making more fuel tanks, you are just going to have a larder and a large supply of fat. You've got more fuel than you need and you're carrying it around. All right. And that's why people actually grow this very harmful body fat. And by the way, if you keep on overloading it, keep on overloading it, keep on overloading it, at some point, your body. Your body's fat system goes, gives up. They're like, all right, I cry, uncle. We can't take this anymore. And then you know what the fat does from those fuel tanks? It leaks out. And when fat leaks yeah. out, okay, um, it leads to something called lipotoxicity because fat itself, when it comes out, is toxic. All right, like, like the fuel that comes out of your gas tank, lipo and your body races in an emergency like a fire engine. Like a, like a firehouse to put out a fire to try to deal with that. And the body's fire department to try to put out lipotoxicities in the liver. So the fat gets sequestered, trapped in the liver. Okay. And now the liver becomes fatty liver. And so, as you know, we know as doctors, one of the silent epidemics in modern society is non-alcoholic mm. fatty liver disease. And it's due to overload, fuel overload over the course of a lifetime of eating ultra processed foods, overloading on calories, not getting enough exercise, putting poor quality of fuel uh, into our bodies. This is what our, we're paying with in terms of the health of people in society today. Okay, so back to the mm. original question. How do you actually reverse that? How do you prevent that? How do you deal with, um, you know, many of us are walking around uh, uh, probably with a lot of extra fuel tank uh, in our body. 
Well, the good news is our body is also hardwired to burn down body fat. If we eat the right foods, Mother Nature's pharmacies, some of these bioactives like chlorogenic acid we talked about, elagic acid we talked about, anthocyanins in blueberries and strawberries uh, and blackberries that give them their color, the natural dye, um, uh, quercetin in onions, allicin in garlic, hydroxytyrosol in extra virgin olive oil. Okay. Um, and I'm, I, I don't want to overwhelm people with chemical names. I just want you to know that we're making these discoveries in modern food as medicine research to find out that these mm -hmm. natural chemicals found in the foods that we eat more when the food is grown in an organic setting because of the nibbling of the bugs. Okay. More of the good stuff. Yeah. They actually can trigger your body to burn down extra fuel, burn down body fat. Now, how do they do that? There's a lot of different ways to burn down extra body fat. The way, one of the most surprising to me as I was doing my research is that many of these plant-based bioactives, and by the way, I, I know, you know, of course we want to emphasize the importance of eating um, uh, produce, but even fish containing mm -hmm. omega-3 fatty acids, and you can get omega-3s from, to a much lesser extent from eating plant-based foods, but omega-3s, okay, um, will also do this will trigger a kind of fat in your body that is not wiggly jiggly, not unsightly, not disgust provoking, does not cause the number in your scale to increase, but it is a kind of fat that is a hero kind of fat. So there's good fat and bad fat you want to, uh, in our body. And the first, let me tell you, the good fat is called brown fat. Brown fat is actually the color of the fat. First, brown fat is not close to the skin. Therefore, you can't see it under the chin. You can't see it under the arm. You can't, it's not your muffin top. It's not on your thighs. It's not on your butt. All right. So brown fat is not there. The hero fat, brown fat, is not close to the skin. It's close to the bone, deep around your neck, under your breastbone. A little bit in your belly, a little bit behind your shoulder blades. In fact, if you were to actually scan the body to look for where the brown fat is, it's kind of like a girdle that sits around our chest area and around our neck, close to the bone. All right. Now, what does brown fat do? Well, brown fat um, is it does something called thermogenesis. Its job is to fire mm. up like the gas uh, range on your in your kitchen if you cook with gas. So what happens when you actually cook with gas, right? You want to heat some soup up, you put the pot on the stove, you, you turn on the handle, you go click, 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 whoosh. Now you got the flame. Now you're heating up the stove. That's what brown fat does, okay? When you turn on brown fat and these plant-based bioactives like elagic acid, chlorogenic acid, quercetin, I mean, uh, lycopene, tomatoes and onions and strawberries and blueberries, and blackberries and 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 uh, uh, sulforaphanes like kale, cabbage, uh, uh, all those kinds of things. Click, 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 whoosh. They turn on your brown fat. They turn on the fire of your brown fat. Thermogenesis means making heat. Thermo heat, genesis making. Brown fat does thermogenesis. Now, to make any kind of heat, you've got to actually burn fuel. Now, in a kitchen, your gas burner draws uh, gas Okay, natural gas from a tank. Might be in the street, might be in the side of your house or your apartment, but it's drawing that fuel in. If you didn't have fuel, 
if the gas line wasn't there, you wouldn't you wouldn't be able to heat create the the the, the fire, the flame, right? It makes total sense. Brown fat is able to create the flame because it actually draws the fuel it needs to create heat from your white fat, from the bad fat, from the excess fat that's accumulated in your body when your brown fat is triggered and turned on. It siphons off that harmful extra fuel that you've loaded up year after year in your body or maybe over the holidays, and it burns it off by firing up and creating heat. All right, how does it create heat? How does it create heat? If the fuel is actually coming from harmful fat and your brown fat is like the gas burner, burning it down, consuming the fuel, all right, because you overloaded on it, how does it, how does it actually do that? What's sparking the, the, the fire? It turns out your mitochondria. Now, some people might have heard about mm. the concept of mitochondria uh, as, uh, as, you know, uh, for anti-aging and for uh, prevent cell senescence and activating your energy. Exactly. And Rupi, you and I, when we were in med school and doing biochemistry before med school, all those recommendations like we're studying the mitochondria, you know, the mitochondria is the, the battery of all of our human cells. It's a little nuclear fuel tank. It's like a watch battery you put in your watch. It, it, it has, it's small but mighty. It generates all the energy. Forget about the ATP and the Krebs cycle and all that kind of stuff. Most people are not going to be interested. <laughs> in I mean, I'm sure if you're like me, I, I could, I, I, I'm so glad that I'm not even thinking about that stuff anymore. But I am thinking about mitochondria <laughs> because brown fat has a lot of mitochondria. Now, mitochondria... Mm -hmm is the engine that helps to trigger the fuel to burn and create heat. Mitochondria being the fuel cell creates the heat to burn down the fuel. So you have to burn away harmful body fat triggered by healthy plant-based foods and the bioactives. Now, mm. why is brown fat brown? Because it turns out that mitochondria have a lot of iron in it. And iron, what happens when you have a lot of iron? You got a pile of nails made of iron, you put it out in the porch, Outside, it's going to happen. The silver nails turn brown. Mm. Indeed, brown fat has so much mitochondria to be able to fire up the gas range to burn down the extra fuel in your body that, that, that it, there's a lot of mitochondria with a lot of iron that oxidizes. And that's why brown fat is brown. That's why, because it's mm. got these fuel tanks in it that happen to be very, have a lot of iron. And now you'll never forget why brown fat is brown. Okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so there are lots of foods. And in my book, Eat to Beat Your Diet, I list all the foods that can activate them. The good news is that many of these foods are those same foods that you would find in recipes you would cook from the Asian uh, uh, food traditions or the uh, Mediterranean food traditions. You know, you're talking about whole plant-based foods, healthy oils, mixing them together, you know, and maybe adding a little bit of seafood once in a while, uh, and, and you'll get nuts and legumes. All the things that we already know are healthy. Now we're having a new interpretation, a new deeper understanding of like, in addition to just, I don't know, good for gut health or making us feel a little bit better or less saturated fat or whatever. Now we know that many of yeah. these foods light up our brown fat to burn down harmful white fat. And that, when you burn down the harmful white fat, by the way, this big pile of growing, this blob of white fat that grows because you, you're just keeping on making more and more fuel tank. As it gets bigger, mm. your white fat growing blob of fuel tanks accumulating, okay, are act, actually grow like a tumor. A tumor 
expands in its size, and when it eventually expands bigger than its blood supply is able to handle, the middle of it starts to die because it's not fed by, it doesn't have a circulation. Remember we told you blood vessels circulation is mm -hmm. critical for, for life of every organ. This fat uh, mass mound is bigger than the blood supply feeding it. The inside starts to die, becomes hypoxic, not the oxygen. And so what happens is that it starts to become inflamed. That inflammation within growing mounds of fat that grows like a tumor leaks out of the mound of fat and guess where it goes? Into your bloodstream and now your whole body's inflamed, mm -hmm. which is why we know that the condition of obesity and even pre-full-on pre obesity, you know, if you have excess body mass, pre-diabetes, for example, large waistline, you probably have too many fuel tanks, extra fuel stored in you, okay? And you're probably leaking some of that fuel, not good for your liver, lipotoxic. You're probably also having inflammation that's leaking out from the middle. You want to activate your brown fat. You want to burn away those extra stores of fat with exercise. And, you know, like you want to use up that fuel so that you can lower the inflammation in your body. Gut health, gut microbiome also helps to lower the inflammation as well. This is how our whole system's connected. And so, you know, people are going, well, What's the diet that I should follow like a slave in order to be able to burn down <laughs> yeah. my, my extra fat? I don't think you need to be on a diet. That's why I wrote my book, How Eat to Beat a Diet. You don't need to go on a robotic uh, regimen. You just need to be aware that there are foods that you can eat in moderation, prepared in absolutely delicious ways that give you diversity that allow you to choose from the plant-based foods, whole plant-based foods, nuts and legumes, spices and healthy oils that allow you to do, in addition to all the other healthy things they do, they light up your brown fat to burn down the harmful fat, thereby lowering inflammation. And by the way, as a side effect of all of this, you get better metabolism and more energy. So this is actually the reason to do it, and you'll shrink your waistline, and you'll fit into clothing a lot better, and you'll look better, and you'll feel better, and you'll have more cognitive energy, more mental sharpness as well. This is really why the simple question of Dr. Lee, you know, what are the, your favorite fat-burning foods? I, I wanted to explain this because it's not as easy as just putting yeah. up five foods. I could do that. But it's much more powerful to explain to people how I learned this, how I arrived at the lists of foods, and why they're actually good for you. By the way, um, tea and coffee will also activate brown fat. Yeah, absolutely. That's why I'm a big coffee and tea drinker. <laughs> That's fab. And I really appreciate that response because it's really important for people to understand the mechanisms behind which food can trigger all these very, very complicated pathways that lead to ultimately improving your weight management, improving inflammation levels, preventing the, the diseases of modernity. Um, but the other thing that I really appreciate about your books and, and your message is that these foods are super accessible as well. They don't have to be particularly exotic. They are are littered across most supermarkets and they are simple additions that are cross culinary. So onions, garlic, chili, uh, uh, ginger, um, all the uh, other plant foods that we've already mentioned, uh, coffee and, and tea, like, you know, the surprising benefits of these everyday and, foods. And don't forget chocolate. Um, and don't forget chocolate. 
Dark chocolate. Chocolate as well. <laughs> I will I will never forget chocolate. I'm a big chocolate uh, uh, eater myself, 85% plus. And, and now cacao, actually. I, I, I do drink uh, a bit of cacao every now and then. I, I, I want to bring this um, because this has been such a full interview and I just I want to talk to you about so many other subjects, but it'll be great to do it in the kitchen where we can actually talk through different foods and, and show people on, on the channel and, and, and the podcast like what we're talking about and how we would put it into a recipe. But are, are there any sort of ingredients on the horizon that you're uh, getting excited about? They don't necessarily need to be exotic, but there might be foods that you perhaps haven't come across before. Um, I'll go first. I mean, cacao for me is something that I've long enjoyed, but I haven't really been drinking it before. And I'm enjoying the the uh, process of experimenting with different flavors and putting them to you know a, a sweet drink that's actually quite bitter and actually has those health benefits of flavonoids and blood pressure lowering and all the rest of it. Um, are, are there any ingredients that you're sort of experimenting with or, or perhaps you haven't come across well, before? Well, you know, I... I uh... I regularly experiment with different foods. So in my kitchen, mostly because I enjoy doing that for eating purposes. But some of the things that when I when I find that there's a food I'm playing around with that has a new property, that makes me doubly interested in it. Um, I'll, t- I'll tell you mm. one. There's one called uh, the persimmon. Uh, Kaki, mm. I think you find in, uh, in the Mediterranean. It uh, looks like a tomato, about the size of an apple. Uh, it's got kind of a firm skin and it's a kind of firm fruit until it's actually really ripe, in which case it gets really soft. And when and the skin can be a little astringent, but when it's really ripe and soft inside, kind of like an over, like a super overripe tomato, you can cut it and literally with a spoon, you can eat it like pudding. And it's bright wow. red. It's uh, incredible. It's got a very nice sweetness to it, mellow sweetness. It's not overly sweet. Um, it's actually the... Um, it's one of the national fruits, I think, of Japan, um, uh, ah. uh, persimmon. But you can find it in the Mediterranean, so it's cross-cultural. Um, but there's uh, there's carotenoids in it, lycopene, beta-cryptoxanthin. Uh, persimmons actually have been shown to actually improve your immune system and good for your gut health and also improve your metabolism ah. by, ab- by activating brown fat. Now, there's so many different ways you can eat persimmon. Like, I'm, I'm still at the um, joyful discovery of just letting it ripen and finding different varieties and just eating it with a spoon or cutting it. Love it. But I do know that there are, I was just talking to a, uh, a chef yesterday who was telling me, oh, you can make a jelly out of it. Um, uh, you can make a, a puree out of it for the, you know, that you can put a bed of other food on top uh, for it. So I'm designing a meal for a charity event. A good friend of mine from college oh. and in New York City, it's a celebrate um, a dance institute that actually um, called City Step that brings youth uh, and allows them to discover self-expression and creativity through body movement. I, it's Amazing. been around for uh, uh, 40 years. And anyway, so there's a big charity event celebration. So I designed it. They wanted to do a healthy menu in celebration of the body. And so one of the things that I wanted to throw in there um, is, um, oh, I'll tell you. Uh, so so uh, I wanted to throw in some persimmon. Uh, so we're going to do uh, a salad with uh, a kind of um, uh, radicchio uh, called Castelfranco. Mm. It's a very, very mild life. Nice. You, oh, you like that? that? Oh, man. Yeah. That is a, it is almost, yeah. it's Swedish, sweet-ish. It's very delicate. It's got beautiful little speckles of color in it. Um, it, yeah. it really makes 
a salad, much more than a salad. Um, and, uh, and we're going yeah. to, we're going to dress it up with some persimmon, uh, in it as well. So anyhow, the, I, so that's an ingredient that I, I found really, um, new and delightful because of its health benefits. But I'll tell you, um, something old that has something new to it for me are strawberries. I know we've talked about strawberries a couple of times on this, but, Okay. Um, yeah. I was astounded to learn just a few months ago that strawberries are also, uh, that we know are good for immune health and inflammation, lowering inflammation and, and gut health uh, and, and, and good for your circulation. Strawberries are good for brain health as well. Brain health. There was oh. a study published okay. by the university, by researchers from the University of Cincinnati in the United States, where they took a look at 30 uh, people who are middle-aged men and women with mild cognitive deficits. All right. So we're not talking about full on dementia. We're talking about people who are having real trouble remembering things. Okay. If, if anybody listening to this, it sounds like you, you know, what was that again? You know, there's a, there's a, there's a continuum. Uh, but what was interesting is they, they, and this is a small study, but it's a clinical study. They actually compared, uh, they, they did two groups. One had a placebo, um, uh, uh, one had strawberries. And they took fresh ripe strawberries, they dried them up, they crushed them into a powder and they had them put them into a drink. So it's really one cup of strawberries a day. And they found after six weeks of eating just one cup of straw ripe strawberries a day, that memory improved in this group compared to the control and depression due to, and frustration lack, due to the lack of uh, being able to remember decreased yeah. as well. And they were able to perform cognitive functions better. Strawberries, one cup a day. That's yeah. eight medium-sized yeah. strawberries, eight, right? Yeah. So like to me, like I, I, I always feel a sense of elation when there's a food that is mm. accessible, that tastes good, that yeah. I already work with, that there's a new benefit and, and, and you don't need to eat a lot of it. Uh, so anyhow, like those are those are two foods that have come up recently. I love those. I love those. Uh, both the one like a bit more exotic and one um, uh, a lot more accessible. It's great. And you know what? There's there's not many doctors, unfortunately, talking about this food as medicine practice, the appreciation of both the culinary and the nutritional medicine values of food. So I really appreciate your work, William. You know that we've met uh, a number of times now on the podcast and outside of the podcast. And I'm, I'm looking forward to the next time that we'll meet in person, whether that be in the kitchen or on the podcast. Hopefully it'll be in the kitchen because there's definitely some interesting things that we could do. I, you just mentioned the supper club that you're doing. We did one for a good friend of mine who's um, uh, a gynecologist uh, who, who just put out a book on um, problem periods for women. And we designed a supper club menu around uh, some thoughts around, you know, adding fennel because that's been shown to improve dysmenorrhea. We added beans and legumes. We added certain iron-rich vegetables. We added some seafood. We added omega-3-rich ingredients. And, you know, just starting a conversation about how your food is the gateway to improving health overall in a preventative manner and potentially even in a managerial point of view as well. So there's definitely some interesting things that we can do there. 
Um, and I'd love to love to talk about that further when when you're next down. We should definitely do it. it would not, nothing would be more fun for me than to get together with a fellow physician who also has a passion for cooking and the knowledge of uh, and the creativity to be able to uh, mix it up and and do fun things together. I, you know, when I talk about my style, when people say, "Dr. Lee, what's your diet?" I always tell people, "I'm not on a diet." You know, um, diets to me are impossible to stick to. They're all about extremes. They're more about philosophy uh, uh, and ideology uh, and, and, you know, sometimes a little bit of science, but they're more importantly, they're just really tough to stick to. I'm somebody who enjoys mm. my food. I don't want to fear my food. I want to enjoy it. I have a great respect for ingredients. I love the flavors of food and I love to, I wouldn't say, I don't like to pig out, but I do love to uh, sample foods and have my taste buds lit up. It's it's part of my quality of life. Um, and so I tell people, Definitely. I, I don't have a diet I'm on, but I have an approach to my food, my eating. And the approach that I take is, I call it the Mediterranean way of eating. Um, <laughs> I lived in the Mediterranean. I have an Asian background. I also lived in Asia. Um, if I go to a restaurant and I'm looking at a lots of choices on a menu, I will automatically gravitate towards the more Mediterranean or the more Asian uh, choices. If I'm entertaining at my home or cooking dinner just for myself, I'm thinking, what should I have? What should I have? What should I make? I'll automatically gravitate towards those genres of ingredients and, and techniques of preparation. Um, if I'm uh, at a buffet, uh, you know, and I've got all this a huge spread uh, of choices, uh, what you could actually have um, you know, it, recently I did a little video. Uh, I went to um, see uh, an incredible performance of U2, the rock band U2 at, at the Sphere, uh -huh. which is this ep oh, wonderful. Ep ep yeah. epic um, uh, live performance with uh, huge definition and audiovisual. Now, look, if you're in Las Vegas, it's impossible to avoid the La classic Las Vegas buffet. I did a video. Literally, because because I was overwhelmed and I was watching people pile as much food on their plate, and it just made me realize, OMG, there needs to be this is this is a teaching moment. So I took out a video, I busted out a video, and I did a video of like walking through the buffet line, saying, "This is good, this is not so good. Don't take this much, take this much, you know, blah blah blah." And so mm. I always think that, but I, but the things that I focused on and gravitated on, thought about with the Mediterranean preparations or the Asian preparations. So my style of eating is yeah. Mediterranean. I challenge people who are listening or watching this to go to a restaurant and say, if you went to a Mediterranean restaurant, that there's nothing that you could find on the menu that you wouldn't like. Or an Asian restaurant, there's, there's like <laughs> yeah. ah, nothing I can find here. I think most people are like something in these genres. And that makes the food of the idea of healthy eating much more approachable. It's something that is pleasurable to do. You can embrace a healthy diet. You don't have to fear your food. You can lean into it. And as I say, you can love your food to love your health. Absolutely. Absolutely. Honestly, I can't wait to the next time. Lee, you're an absolute inspiration. Um, and uh, yeah, I can't wait to we get to enjoy a meal together and maybe even cook together as well. <laughs> let's, let's do it. Let's do it. Awesome.
Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Doctor's Kitchen Podcast. Remember, you can support the pod by rating on Apple, follow along by hitting the subscribe button on Spotify, and you can catch all of our podcasts on YouTube if you enjoy seeing our smiley faces. Review show notes on the doctorskitchen.com website and sign up to our free weekly newsletters where we do deep dives into ingredients, the latest nutrition news, and of course, lots of recipes by subscribing to the Eat, Listen, Read newsletter by going to thedoctorskitchen.com forward slash newsletter. And if you're looking to take your health further, why not download the Doctor's Kitchen app for free from the App Store? I will see you here next time. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 